If you're new with us this morning, we're going to be picking up with our journey uh, of watching these two star-crossed lovers, as they are, um, in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, depending on which Bible you're opening up. We're using the, the NLT this morning. And basically what we've been doing is we've been following Solomon and the Shulamite woman. And basically what has happened is they went from being engaged to the wedding day and we've kind of followed them on this journey. And then last week we saw a little bit of trouble in paradise. We saw her getting all dolled up and being all prettied up and being in bed. And he comes to the, to the door and he knocks and, and she says to herself, well, I'm a little tired. Well, maybe she had a headache, I don't know. She says, my feet are dirty, my, my feet are clean, and if I get out of bed, I'm going to get them soiled, I'm going to get them dirty. And so she, there's a little bit of complacency there. there, there's a little bit of lack of effort. And so then she finally gets out of bed, and she goes to the door, and he's gone. And she goes out into the streets, and she begins to search for her lover. And she finds the watchman, and the watchmen don't treat her very well, and she's violated in some way. She's, she's bruised, and she's beaten, and they tear the veil off of her. And she goes back home and just being depressed and distressed and not being able to find her lover. And then her attendants ask her, well, where is he? Where is he gone? And as she sits in that question and, and ponders that, she begins to realize and she answers. She says, he's gone to, down to his garden, to his spice beds, to browse in the garden and gather the lilies. I am my lover's and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. And she has some sense of security in this relationship where she identifies, all right, there's been this conflict. He, he's gone, and, and now, well, I know where he is. I know where he is. I know that he, he's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me, that, that I am my lover's, and he is mine. So now, after this trouble in paradise, now we're getting ready to see reconciliation. We pick up in chapter 6, verse 4. You are beautiful, my darling. Like the lo lovely city of Terza, which was the royal seat of the kings of Israel. Yes, as beautiful as Jerusalem, which was the capital city. As majestic as an army with billowing banners. Turn your eyes away, for they overpower me. So here they're reunited, they come back together, there's, there's joy, and he begins to just kind of extol her beauty. He begins to look at her and, and say, oh, you are so beautiful. You're like a, an army moving with all of the billowing banners, an, an awesome sight, a wonderful sight, a sight for sore eyes. And there as he's looking at her, he says, turn your eyes away from me. They're too powerful. And maybe this is something that he's going through personally. Maybe he's experiencing a little bit of shame. Maybe he's going, well, I, I should have stayed there at the door and just knocked a little bit longer. Maybe, I, maybe I'm, I'm, I should have tried a little bit harder. Maybe I, maybe I went away too soon. Or maybe he is getting the evil eye. <laughs> I opened the door like a minute after you left. What's your problem? <laughs> Ever had that? <laughs> so there they are. They're reunited. He says, turn away from me. But then it continues. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep that are freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. She doesn't have summer teeth. Some are here, some are there. And she's got this perfect matching. It's amazing how, you know, if you look at us, you know, we, we really are drawn to symmetry. We like people whose ears are the same height on both sides of their head, you know, or, or we like 
teeth that are, you know, all there, or, or matching, or, you know, and, and we go to great efforts to find these people or to change our appearances to, to in some way be appealing. And, and here he's kind of identifying this really shallow part of us, <laughs> which, eh, it's shallow, but that's all right. We can be shallow sometimes. We've got more depth to talk about. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. You know, they have the perfect curve, the perfect hue of rosiness. Even among 60 queens and 80 concubines and countless young women, I would still choose my dove, my perfect one, the favorite of her mother, dearly loved by the one who bore her. The young women see her and praise her. Even queens and royal concubines sing their praises. Who is this arising like the dawn, as fair as the moon, as bright as the sun, as majestic as an army with billowing banners? There he repeats that phrase. And here he is, he's just extolling her beauty. And I, I did a little bit of research and I found uh, a few pickup lines that, that he thought about using. One of them, uh, he, he kind of discarded this one. If there was a flood coming, baby, you'd be on my ark. I've been wandering in a desert of despair for 40 years, waiting for the moment to meet you. God says my body is a temple. Feel free to worship. <coughs> So he kind of cast those aside, you know, I had to do some really deep studying to find out, you know, to find out that information, but here he is, he, he begins to just extol her beauty and pour out his heart to her and just see, tell her about how enraptured he is with who she is. Most scholars believe that this was Solomon's first wife. I say first wife because if you know the story of Solomon, then you know that his wives and his concubines were his demise. They were what brought him down. He had a sweet tooth that was insatiable. He had an appetite for sex and for lust and for passion that he continued to seek out and to fulfill and try to please himself. L listen to what it says, the commentary of him in uh, 1 Kings. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, he turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father, David, had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father, David, had done. So here he is, he's drawn away by 700 wives and 300 concubines. This insatiable appetite. Here he is, he's expressing all this love, and maybe we begin to see a, a little bit of a, of a shallowness in Solomon. All of these things are focused on the outward, and maybe there wasn't a lot of depth. And so when the beauty failed, or when his passion died, or when the emotion wasn't there, and maybe he just looked at her and said, well, I just don't feel like I love you anymore. Then he went off in search of another woman that would make him feel. It's less than what God has called us to. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon identifies this, this lust, this passion. He says, I, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. 
but I found that this too was meaningless. And then he continues a little bit later and he says, I discovered that a seductive woman is a trap more bitter than death. Her passion is a snare and her soft hands are chains. Those who are pleasing to God will escape her, but sinners will be caught in her snare. It continues also in verse 29, I did find this, God created people to be virtuous, but they have each turned to follow their own downward path. Here he is, he's identifying with this hindsight of what's going on, and he sees, he sees the problem that he's made in his life is, as he's identifying this, this passion that was misguided, that was misdirected, that was, that was less than what God had really designed. Somewhere along the line, he, he lost his focus. And here, just to take one step back, here he is in his younger days. He, he's really doing what God would call him to do. Here he is, he, he's going back to his wife. Here he is with his first wife. He's really drawing in and trying to reconcile. He's really trying to, to make a good go of it, to really do what would please God. And in, in this thing, in this conflict that they experience, he, he's really trying to implement some conflict resolution. And there's about five different ways that we handle conflict. The first one that we, we, the way that we can handle conflict is that we yield. And a lot of times maybe we, that sounds very spiritual, that sounds very godly. All right, you know, God calls me to submit and God just wants me, God wants me to yield. But really what yielding is, really what yielding says is, okay, well, whatever you want. Whatever you say, whatever you want, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And it's just kind of like this, this kind of, moving backwards and just saying, all right, you know, I don't want to stir anything up. I don't really want there to be a problem. You just have it your way. And we kind of look at it in terms of, all right, I need to be conscientious and I need to put other people's needs before my own and all of those kinds of things. But God doesn't call us to that kind of yielding. Another way that we can identify that and another way that we can respond to conflict is by withdrawing. And this is really to avoid conflict at all costs. We're just, I don't want to talk about it. And a lot of times the follow-up on that is, I, I don't really want to talk about it ever, <laughs> you know? And we withdraw and we just, we just refuse to work out the conflict. We re refuse to, to talk about my hurt or your hurt. We refuse to engage it and to try to work through it and try to move into the place of godly peace and restoration and understanding. And so we just withdraw and we just think that, well, if I ignore it, if I just don't say anything about it, if I just kind of, oh, I don't want to stir anything else up, and so we just sit back, we just withdraw, and it's not right. It's ungodly. Another way that we can do that, another way we can deal with, with conflict is by compromising. Compromising. And this is one of those things that uh, maybe a lot of times, you know, uh, when you're getting ready to get married, or those of you that have been married, or maybe you've gotten marital advice or relational advice that, you know, hey, it's all about, it's all about compromise. You know, it's a give and it's a take. But I'm here to tell you, it's not a give and take, it's a give. And give, and give, and give, and give, and give. Because that is what God has set as the example. That He loved us so much that He gave. And so there's no rights, there's no responsibility that, that I have to take in terms of making something happen. I have to submit. And I have to not compromise, but I have to submit myself to God's standard. And so in this thing called compromise, it isn't about just giving and taking. A lot of times there's that mentality, all right, well, I gave this, so you have to do this. And there's this whole question of fairness that comes into our mind. There's this whole idea that, you know, well, I deserve this because look at all of the things that I have done. 
Look at all the things that I have given. Look at all the things that I have invested. And so what happens is we begin to weigh these things out. And that is not godly. That is not the example that God has set for us. This one sounds pretty good too. We can resolve. And the idea behind this is that we're just trying to attain some measure of peace. All right, we're peaceful. We can, we can survive. All right, I, I can... I'll, I'll just say what you want to hear, and so then everything will be good until the next time, and then I'll, you know, then I can withdraw, or then I can compromise, or then whatever. We'll, we'll just resolve it, we'll just get it over with, but the truth of the matter is, is that nothing's actually resolved. Things are simply swept under the rug. Hurts aren't, aren't dealt with. People have not asked for forgiveness. There isn't repentance. There's just simply this peace that isn't true peace. It isn't God's peace. Because what he calls us to, ultimately, the last and final way that we can deal with conflict is reconciliation. Reconciliation. And what that is, is that is godly submission and love. Godly submission and love. And that is really what he calls us to. Reconciliation. That we, we put our needs on the back burner. That we invest in our mates, that we invest in our spouse in such a way that we identify their needs. And we, like our Savior, we give. And we give, and we give, and we give. Love gives without expecting a return. Anything less, you've got the wrong definition of love. We must reconcile our definitions to God's definition, which is unconditional. So Solomon here, he, he begins to, to kind of step out in the right way, but somewhere along the line, he begins to invest in his folly. As he said there in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the first verse, he said, I began to just kind of say to myself, let me just kind of seek out pleasure. Let me find out what's going on out there in the world. Let me see if there's some other ways that I can achieve fulfillment. Somewhere along the line, he lost focus. He lost hope. He lost love. And he began to invest in his pleasure. He began to invest in folly. Maybe he began to invest his emotions, someone other than his spouse. He found a listening ear and a co-worker or a friend. And so he began to, to have a confidant that was someone other than his wife. Maybe he found an online wife in a second life. Maybe he found some person that, you know, that, that would listen to him and that could engage him and that could understand him and that would love him for who he is. In this altered reality. Maybe instead of playing games with his kids, he just sat back and just began to take in the games. He began to go into this method of, of, of escaping, some, finding some satisfaction and finding some pleasure in this, in this escape, in this alternate reality, and not engaging his kids and being the, the, the priest of his home, being the lover of his wife, seeking to pour himself out as a drink offering like Christ has done for us. Somewhere he settled. And somewhere he realized that instant gratification was possible. Somewhere he realized, he awakened and said, all right, it's in my line of sight. It is within my grasp and I can take it and I can use it. And my resources are unlimited. The options are vast. Solomon, the wisest man on earth, experiencing some of the most foolish things on earth by investing in his own pleasure, investing in his own folly. And later in life, he identifies it in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He says, everything is meaningless 
completely meaningless. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey His commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Solomon has it right in one respect here. He's looking back, hindsight is 2020, and he identifies, okay, it's good, fear God, yes. Keep his commands, love God, yes, right on. But what he misses here is he makes the statement, this is every man's duty. Duty? It's not just about duty. It's something about greater than duty. It it moves into the realm of love, where love compels us, love impels us to do that thing which God calls us to do, instead of just doing the thing, merely doing the thing that duty compels. Commitment is great. Devotion is great. Faithfulness is great. But guess what? It isn't enough. If it isn't done in love, we've missed the point entirely. If you read 1 Corinthians 13, you'll find that out very, very clearly. Well, here, let's jump back to, back to real time. Let's, we zoomed out and kind of looked at, at a bigger picture of, of Solomon's life and some of the things that we, he's been going through. Now let's zoom back in. He says, I went down to the grove of, of walnut trees, verse 11, and out to the valley to see the new spring growth, to see whether the grapes had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, I found myself in the royal chariot with my beloved. Return to us, O maid of Shulam. Come back. Come back that we may see you again. Why do you stare at this young woman of Shulam as she moves so gracefully between two lines of dancers? Basically, what's going on here is a lot of people think that this is where Solomon is kind of recapping, you know, a a little bit of their past of, of maybe the first time that they met. Remember this Shulamite woman, she was, she was out in the vineyard, she was picking the grapes. She was working for her brothers, and they were angry with her, and so they sent her out there and said, catch the little foxes for us, the ones that are spoiling the grapes. Take care of the vineyards for us. And, and she said that, that she was out there in the sun, and she was getting, getting heat stroke and being hot, and, and she was very tan, and she was very dark and became undesirable. And yet, here Solomon comes by in his chariot. It's one of the first times that he meets her, and, and he finds great worth. He cherishes her. He finds her very, very beautiful, and he, he invites her to come up into the chariot, and it's the first kind of, just kind of rapturous moment. Oh, wow, love at first sight. And they move off, and, and, and the, the, her friends are calling and saying, hey, come back to us, return, return, you know. We want to love you too, you know. And, and it's really a picture of leaving and cleaving. Maybe you've heard that statement before. And really what it is, is it's, it's the biblical example that God gives us for marriage. That when we go into marriage, when we start our new lives with our spouse, that we leave behind our old life. That we leave behind our personalities. We leave behind the constraints of our parents and being told what to do. But in fact, that God has called us to be responsible for our own relationships. God has called us to be responsible for each other. And so as we move into that marriage relationship, as we leave and as we cleave, as we invest in not mommy anymore, sorry moms, that's Mother's Day, but, the, but we move out into the new realm. Now, now I might be the mom, now I might be the dad. Now there's new responsibility, now there's new purpose. Now it's two lives becoming one, leaving and cleaving. And that's really what we're seeing there. Now this next section really is, is nothing less Nothing less than foreplay. 
Maybe that scares you to death to talk about that in church. But really, that's exactly the picture that we get. And you'll see, as Pastor Mark teaches us next week and, and talks about the things that are coming, you'll see that this is exactly what this is. And foreplay is one of those things that, well, it, it doesn't take minutes. It doesn't take hours. It doesn't take days. There's no real time limit on it. It's, it's something that, that isn't intrinsically sexual. It's something that is a lifestyle. It is something that is a pattern of expressing love. It might be something as simple as sending a text message. Love you. Thinking about you. It might be something as simple as leaving, writing a note and leaving it in her purse. So she goes through and she's looking for something and she finds it. Hey, what's this? Just want you to know, baby, that you are the, the apple of my eye. Your hair is like a flock of goats coming down the, <laughs> the side of Mount Gilead. Oh, I can't wait to see you tonight, you know? Whatever it is, it, it may be something that, that, that is that simple, you know? That's, that's foreplay. That is, that is learning to understand the way that my spouse, my mate, speaks the language of love. It's not intrinsically sexual, but it is an expression of love, emotion, passion, and truth. It is identifying the way your spouse needs to be loved and what makes them feel loved and investing all your resources to help them feel secure and confident in your love. It might be a hug. It might be a kiss. It might be a pat on the butt. Whatever it is. But it doesn't necessarily have to be something that demands a response. It is an expression of love. And that is the purest form. I'm not doing this because I'm trying to get you in bed. I'm doing this because I love you and I want you to know it. That's foreplay. And here we'll see as we go through this section, you know, listen to what he says. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. Your navel is perfectly formed like a goblet filled with mixed wine. That's a pretty big belly button. Between your thighs lies a mound of wheat bordered with lilies. Not even going to touch that. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is as beautiful as an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the sparkling pools of Heshbon by the gate of Rathrabim. Your nose is as fine as the tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. That's where she swooned right there. Your head is as majestic as Mount Carmel, and the sheen of your hair radiates royalty. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are, how pleasing, my love, how full of delights, how slender like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like grape clusters, and the fragrance of your breath like apples. May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine, flowing gently over lips and teeth. This is beautiful. Maybe it's a little bit uncomfortable to begin to, you know, kind of, wait a second, we're, we're talking about foreplay corporately. We're talking about foreplay in church. But this is really God's design. And we should not settle for anything less than that. And, and this is explicitly in terms of a married couple. There's nothing wrong with this picture. God has put it in here for our edification. 
And so for a single person listening to this going, all right, well, where do I fit in? Where do you fit in? Identify the passion. Identify the purpose. Identify God's design. Identify the mistakes. Get true wisdom, which is looking at Solomon's mistakes, being able to identify someone else's mistakes and not make the same ones. Grasp onto it and go, all right, this is God's design. One man, one woman, enraptured in love, investing in each other, caring for each other, having a lifestyle of love, pouring out the love that God has given and enjoying it. It's beautiful. It's purposeful. It's intimate. And really, it's an encouragement for all of us to invest in a deeper level in relationships. For the married people, it is an an investment. Well, guess what? All right, kids came along, and now our life is about the kids. Wrong. Your life is not about your kids. Now your kids are part of your life. The ministry always goes to God first, then it goes to your spouse, then it goes to your family, and then it goes to the rest. Kids are not an excuse. Kids are not a reason for your marriage to fall apart. You have to invest. You have to go to the deeper level. You have to push on and you have to seek out the needs of your spouse in meeting them, in loving them, in learning how they speak the language of love. I remember early on in Renee and my marriage, we would have that conflict. (laughs) And she'd say, you just don't love me. I said, I love you. I, I tell you how I love you. I show you how I love you. What are you talking about? Well, I, I mow the grass, and I, and I trim the hedges, and I, I do the dishes, and, and I vacuum, and I dust, and I, I'm doing all these things. And she goes, that means that you love me? I said, yeah. What's the problem? And she goes, I didn't know that. We had to learn to speak each other's language. When she began to realize that my, my expression of love is oftentimes through service, then she began to grasp the depth of my love for her. And I began to grasp her need to hear I love you seven million times an hour. (laughs) Because that was the way that she needed to be loved. And it's okay. And now, how do we see that the Shulamite woman responds? Verse 10, chapter 7. I am my lover's, and he claims me as his own. Do you feel the security? Do you see the passion? Do you see the response? Do you see the truth? Solomon's intent wasn't, all right, I'm flattering her. I'm buttering her up, trying to get her in bed. No, he's pouring out his heart in the most pure expression of what he knows how to do. And she responds in security and in peace and in passion and in love. And Pastor Mark gets to talk about makeup sex next week. I dodged the bullet on that one. <clears throat> we see God's design for relationships. We see that in our, in our setting of boundaries, for those of us that, you know, maybe are not married, you have boyfriends or girlfriends, and you need to learn to guard your heart. You need to listen to the advice of Solomon through the women who are attending the Shulamite woman as she says to them, as she encourages them, wait, don't stir up love until the time is right. It's worth waiting for. It's worth investing in. You can invest in it now. 
You can dream dreams. You can have hopes. You can draw near to God. You can let God stir up those passions and hold them in your heart just waiting to unleash them on your beloved. But you have to wait until the time is right. And for the body of Christ, as God calls us, there's also a picture here of Him graciously pouring out His love that we need to be pouring out to each other, bearing one another's burdens, drawing each other into deeper fellowship with Him, caring for one another, rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn, and being real, being authentic, letting God minister through us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you, as we move into a time of worship and into a time of prayer, Lord, I pray that these words would just sink into our hearts and into our minds. Lord, the practical application of, of conflict resolution, Lord, yielding and, and compromising and withdrawing and resolving and what your true point is, your true calling of reconciliation. Lord, I pray that, that we would identify these things that we need to change in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would fill us with your spirit and empower us to be able to overcome our weaknesses, overcome the, the patterns of failure, Lord, where we continue to do the same thing and getting the same results and getting desperate and getting frustrated. It's insanity. Lord, I pray that you give us the wisdom to be able to move forward according to your word, to be able to, to cast down strongholds and to cast down walls that we've placed in our lives that keep us from intimacy, that keep us from your design, that keep us from fully experiencing your design and your plan. For those that need to wait, Lord, I pray that you give them the desire and the passion and the ability, the strength to be able to wait, to wait upon you to see that you have a good plan, that you have their best in mind, and that you long to desire and long and desire to fulfill those passions that you've put in their hearts. Lord, give us wisdom for these areas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You got a handout when you walked in. Today is the global day of prayer. And what we're going to do here is we're going to take a few minutes. The band's going to lead us in a little bit of worship. But what I want you to do is I want you to just get together with the people at your table or maybe with your spouse. And, and what I want you to do is go over that list. There's places. Take a few moments at the beginning, a minute or two, to, to pray for yourself personally. There's a, a list that I've made of things that you can do to kind of reflect upon and ask God for. And then begin to corporately pray. Just go ahead and you can just lift your voices and, uh, and everybody just praying. And, and pray for our community. Pray for our city. Pray for our country. Pray for our world. And this is one of those things that didn't start in America. It isn't some kind of Americanized Christianity. This is actually a movement that started in Africa amongst a very small group of Christians. And they got together and, and they said, we need to pray. We need to beseech God on behalf of ourselves and of our country. And 2 Chronicles 7.14 says that if my people who are called by my name will cry out to me, will call, I will, I will hear their voice paraphrase i will hear their voice i will answer and i will come and heal their land and this is what we need to do in this time and in this place as we lift our voices and as we join across people with people across the globe as we cry out to our god and our father to come and touch us to come and bring his spirit to come and make us the people that he desires us to be let's move into a time of of worship and conversation and prayer with our god